0: We're going to pick up in verse 21 with that thought in mind, Jesus is the light of the world, and the the controversy that sort of erupts out of that. So, verse 21. Excuse me. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, "'Will he kill himself, since he says, "'Where I am going, you cannot come?' "'He said to them, "'You are from below, I am from above. "'You are of this world, I am not of this world. "'I told you that you would die in your sins, "'for unless you believe that I am he, "'you will die in your sins.' So they said to him, "'Who are you?' Jesus said to them, "'Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him.'" They did not understand that he was speaking, had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, "'When you have lifted up the Son of Man,' Then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Let's pray. Father, As Jesus opened the minds of the disciples in Emmaus, so we ask that you would open our minds, that we might understand the Scriptures and therefore know Christ more fully and know ourselves more fully as well. We ask this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As I was uh, thinking about this passage, and I'm going to do it a little differently today. We're going to only have two points, which are sure those of you who are excited, until you see that the two points are actually longer. So eh, it happens. Give, Steve gives, Steve takes away. Okay? But don't say, blessed be the name of Steve, please. Um, <clears throat> as I was thinking about this, I, I, I see Jesus, in a sense, evangelizing the people in the temple. And so I I want us to think about this within a context of evangelism and and what it is for us to evangelize. Okay, So it's a slightly different approach this morning as as we think about these things. And I thought, what is it that really often kind of keeps us from proclaiming Christ and his work to people that we know? And it's often, I think, our discomfort with confrontation. Because uh, making these things known necessarily produces confrontation. And so we sometimes struggle with the fear of man. Uh, We fear the the possible loss of a relationship, if we're perhaps too bold about these things. Uh, Particularly in this day and age, we're afraid of people saying, Don't you judge me? Who are you to condemn me? You know, sort of some of the pushback that we experience uh, when we can make Christ known to people. But I want us to be encouraged by the Scriptures this morning and how Jesus deals with the reality of confrontation. He doesn't shrink back from it. He's bold in the midst of it. He says some things that are hard, but he does it out of love. So love doesn't mean avoiding the hard things that we say. Our big idea this morning is that Jesus is the suffering Son of Man sent to save sinners. And, you know, as I wrote that, or typed that on my computer, I thought, you know what, so much of John's gospel keeps bringing us back to that point. Precisely because we keep needing to remember that point. That is John's main point through most of this gospel, and so if it sounds like I'm being redundant, blame John blame the Holy Spirit, don't blame me, okay? It's not my fault, but that's why it's a little different today. As we look at this text, there's going to be I'm looking at it in terms of two things. One, what does this say about us, or people in general, and what does this say about Jesus? And so we're going to start with the first of those two things. What does this say about us? And it says that we are sinners who need to be saved. This interaction with the Pharisees and the the leaders of Israel is characteristic of the many encounters that Jesus not only had with unbelievers then, but that we still have with unbelievers now. Okay? People are the same. Some of the circumstances of humanity have changed, obviously, but human beings haven't changed. And how they respond to the truth really hasn't changed a whole lot. And so we can see from their responses to these things how people will respond, generally speaking, when we make Christ known to others. And we see the first thing I want us to, to look at is that they generally tend to miss the point. We've seen this repeatedly in the Gospel of John. Jesus is frequently misunderstood. It's just like, hello, McFly, you know, are these people getting anything here? And here it seems like some of the most profound misunderstanding that we find. Jesus mentions, he says, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And their response to that is to themselves, will he kill himself? Now, if you have an NASB, and I know some of you out there do, there's a knot. He's not thinking of killing himself, is what they kind of do. There's no negative in there. They've, they've kind of done that for clarity's sake, perhaps. Uh, i not sure exactly why. But they miss the complete point of what Jesus is saying. Now let me step aside from the text for a second. Um, as, as many of you know, I re- one of someone I know recently committed suicide uh, someone else I know recently attempted suicide. Uh, the scriptures don't often give the opportunity to speak about this, so I'm going to take this moment, a brief moment, to speak about this. The reason why they say, you know, essentially, they think that they can't go where Jesus is going to go is they think that Jesus, if Jesus commits suicide, he's basically committed the unpardonable sin, and therefore um, he would be where they don't want to go. <laughs> See, they're going, they, in their minds, they're going to be with the Father, right? And Jesus, if he, commits, if he kills himself, he's not going to be with the Father. Suicide is a sin. There's no getting around that. It's a violation of the Sixth Commandment. I think I got that right because I just pulled it out of my head. Okay. Thou shalt not commit murder. It's a violation of that. And so it is a serious sin, but we must not think that the grace of Jesus Christ is insufficient to deal with that sin for those who are in Christ. While there is no opportunity for repentance, obviously, after committing that sin, that does not mean it is an unpardonable sin. For there are many sins that we commit every day that we don't realize we've committed and we don't repent of them. So the issue is not whether or not we've repented of of a particular sin. The issue for me, anyway, is, is the grace of Jesus Christ sufficient to cover that sin? And according to the rest of Scripture, it is. Because when it talks about the, the sin that will not be forgiven, suicide is not what is mentioned. And so some of you know, have loved ones who may have attempted or committed suicide, Yourself may have considered doing it yourself. Know that it is sin, but know that Christ is greater. Christ is much greater. So anyway, they lacked the ability, Jesus says, to go where Jesus is going. Now, if you just read this sentence that Jesus says, the statement Jesus makes, it sounds a little confusing, doesn't it? I'm going away. You're going to seek me, but you're not going to find me. You can't go where I'm going to go. It's it's sort of, Jesus is speaking in an, an obscure sort of way. Jesus is informing them, as we look at the larger context here, of his impending death, not at his own hand, but his impending death nonetheless, of his impending resurrection and his ascension the reason why they can't go is because he's going to the Father. And we're going to get to that that, that that bomb that he drops on them about them dying in their sin in a moment. But that's the reason they can't go. It's because they remain in their sin. The earthly ministry of Jesus, however, is ending. It's coming to a close. But what they do is... They flip everything around. And this is what sinners do. They flip everything around so that they're in the right and Jesus is in the wrong. Okay, it's, They think they're okay. They think Jesus has problems. And that's, that's the heart that refuses to accept the truth of our sinfulness and the sufficiency of God's grace as we tend to, I'm all right, Jesus is the problem. Or, you Christians are the problem. And we face that in our evangelism. Expect it. Don't be put off by it. Don't get too frustrated by it. We have to remember, as we read from first, uh, sorry, Second Corinthians chapter 4, that unbelievers are still blinded by Satan. And therefore, as a result, they cannot understand the truth, and they cannot understand its implications well. There is a problem in their heads because of the Noahic effect of sin. We see it later on in the passage. They didn't understand that Jesus was speaking about the Father as the one who sent him. There's a great lack of understanding. There's a spiritual problem that exists. It's not an intellectual problem that exists that blinds them to the truth of who they are and blinds them to the truth of who Jesus is. But it's not just them. There is an evil one who is party to this as well. So there's, there's the problem inside, but there's also the problem outside in the person of Satan who blinds them. Now, Jesus makes this statement that, again, this is obscure in some sense. You will seek me. There's going to come a time when they are going to seek a Messiah. Let's put it that way. Okay? Okay? Jesus knows that the judgment is going to come upon the nation of Israel and that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed in in A.D. 70. He knows this is coming, and he knows his people will seek deliverance from anywhere, and they will look for anyone. And when you are desperate, you don't care where the help comes from, do you? And they might look for Jesus. Let's look at this biblically to perhaps understand this because he says, you will not find me. We see the first promise in Deuteronomy chapter 4, and it's speaking about Israel having experienced disobedience and therefore judgment, being sent into exile, and then this is what happens. From there, this far-off place that you've been dragged because of your sin, Moses says, from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if, if, You search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. And so there's a condition there that is presented, this wholeheartedness of seeking after him. And it's this that Jeremiah brings up to the people upon whom that promise is given, they're going to experience the exile. He's part of the exile generation. He's watching his fellow citizens of Jerusalem and is in Judah being carted off to various places in the Babylonian Empire. And, got, and he applies that text in Deuteronomy to them in Je- Jeremiah 29. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So part of what Jesus is subtly saying is that you may seek me, but you will not be seeking me with all your heart. You'll be seeking other things too, any old way out of this mess. This promise has not been removed, but we see it found again in James 5. Sorry, 4. My bad. It's because of, of the parallel in First uh, Peter 5. My brain blipped. There's this promise given to them, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And so we have this sort of outstanding. When when we're struggling, let us seek him, but let us remember to seek him wholeheartedly, not partially, not along with everything else, dividing our loyalties to him. So let's move on from the seeking to Jesus dropping the bomb. You will die in your sin, verse 21. Now, what's interesting is that in verse 24, he, two times he uses the phrase, you will die in your sins, plural. Here in 21, it's sin, singular. Are we to make anything about this? There's two options in verse 21. He could be talking about sin as a condition, the fact that you are a sinner, the fact that because you are in Adam, you are in sin. And therefore, if you die in sin, in that condition, you cannot be where Jesus is. Second option would be where John Calvin goes with this. And he says that uh, he's talking about a particular sin. Which is being evidenced by the Pharisees at this moment, and that would be the sin of unbelief. Okay, and then later he sort of expands it to the other sins that are committed by them. Well, I would say that our sins, plural, flow out of sin, the condition, singular. And that sin, the condition, is one of rebellion against God, which is, which is marked by unbelief. And so, you know, in a sense, both of these are true. They're just looking at it at, from slightly different angles. The default mechanism of one who is a sinner is unbelief. Okay? That's their primary operating system, unbelief. You might have lion, you might have a mountain lion or a leopard or whatever for your Mac. Those who are outside of Christ have unbelief as their operating system. Okay? I want to say something about that. Too often we tend to focus on one sin in the life of the other person. Okay? And usually it's a sin that we find personally... Reprehensible or horrific or whatever, and in this day and age, it's easy to say homosexuality. Okay, now be careful in exegeting what I'm about to say. Okay, be very careful, and I'll explain this. So hopefully you will be you'll listen carefully. No one is going to hell because they're a homosexual. Okay. Now, some of you may have gone, well, wait a minute, what's he saying? They are going to hell because they're sinners. That is just one of the many sins they commit. It is not the only sin that they commit. Okay? And part of the wall that we sometimes create with people, uh, particularly with those with alternative lifestyles, is we make that the issue. The issue is, they're sinners. Now, because of those particular sins, their walls are high. Their defenses are on because they are expecting you as a Christian to condemn them for that particular sin. And if you walk into that trap, you'll never get a hearing. Because it's about far more than that sin. And so you can go for the other sins, their rejection of God in general, uh, their deceit. I mean, there's plenty of sins to go for to help them understand that they fall short of the glory of God. Okay? There's plenty to go for. You don't have to go for the one that you know is going to create the most resistance, the one that confirms all of their stereotypes about you as a Christian. You don't have to do that. You can let God sort that one out in due time. All right. Where was I? He says again, as mentioned two times in verse 24, that you will die in your sins, reminding us that we are accountable for all the sins which flow out of that condition called sin. They're accountable for their homosexuality? Yes, yes. They're also, and we're, we're, we also were, accountable, accountable for our gluttony, for our greed, for our meanness and unkindness, for our selfishness, our arrogance, our theft. I could go on. All of those sins, which flow out of the sinful heart, people are accountable for, in addition to the condition they find themselves in because they are in Adam hard news. And so there's a sense in which we have to tell people that they will die in and for sins. Okay? All people, apart from Christ, are going to die guilty and facing (coughs) condemnation. And that's hard news. They are, in a sense, like a millstone around a neck someone who's trying to swim. Usually when you go swimming, you, you wear as little as you possibly can because everything absorbs water and pulls you down. Okay? Well, a millstone is worse than wearing clothing. And you know what? I almost drowned when I was a kid. I have a fear of drowning. Okay? So the, the idea of that is horrific to me. So I don't say this lightly, but those things are a horrible weight upon the soul of a man or a woman, weighing them down, not just so it's hard to swim, but so they cannot swim. But only finding themselves uncontrollably spiraling to the bottom of the ocean. Now Jesus, thankfully, says, Unless you believe, okay, he presents the condition for salvation from sin and from sins. Unless you believe, let us think a moment for that unbelief for for just a moment. Romans 14. <clears throat> now again, this is the context of <clears throat> excuse me those uh, matters of uh, indifference, so to speak. But he, but he makes a very important point about this, where he says, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. See, the eating of the meat sacrifice, the idols, is not sinful in itself, but Paul says that if you, doubt, if you have doubts about it, don't do it. Okay? Because if you do, you're condemning yourself, or you're judging yourself, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so even works... Deeds that look like obedience, if they don't produ- if they're not produced from faith, guess what? Not really obedience. It's still sin. Okay. Not only that, but we see in Hebrews chapter 11, which I put on the Facebook page yesterday. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists. And that he rewards those who seek him. And so here we bring in that idea of faith and seeking. It is impossible to seek God truly without faith. And in order, in order to believe, you must know that he exists or you won't seek him. you do not going to seek something that might exist or you hope exists. And the seeking God is pleased when we draw near to Him. He is pleased when we seek Him, when we seek Him in faith. And so we must believe the content of what we are to believe is to come. Hang on. But when, we, when we're making Christ known, what, part of what we're doing is we're pressing people towards faith, towards trust in Christ. Not just a general sort of faith and faith itself. But we have to remember that before Christ found us, everything we've said thus far was true of us once. And so we have to remember that we're not morally superior, but that we continue to struggle. But we recognize that because we are in Christ, we are not in our sins. We're no longer under guilt. We're no longer under condemnation. And so we speak as pardoned men and women. And yet, we must remember that sin has not left us yet. I'm starting to read um, a biography of one of my professors. This is the first time I've read a biography about someone I actually know. Isn't that kind of weird? You know? And so every time I, I, I read one of his statements, I, I, I try to do it in Dr. Nicole's accent, which I will not try to imitate for you today, OK? Uh, his Swiss accent. He saw this book before his death, and he was able to write a short preface, and I want to read you something from that preface, and I will not do it in his accent. I know myself. Now okay. He's saying I know himself. If you were to ask anybody on campus, he was a man who was known for his godliness. Okay? He wasn't just a brilliant mind, and he was a genius. That's part of why I didn't, I didn't pursue PhD work. Like, if that's what a prof- seminary professor is, there ain't no way on that. Okay, he was brilliant. This is how he knew himself, and for everyone else, knew him as a as a, a godly man, gentle and patient and everything else. But he knows himself this way, as a disobedient sinner, proud. He was like one of the most humble men I met. Proud, selfish. Unbelieving, deceptive, lustful, lazy. I'll give him that one. He was a procrastinator. He had one of my manuscripts for months and didn't even touch it. Okay? I'll give him that one. Insensitive, a lover of pleasure rather than a lover of God. I have even now, and he was in his, I think he was 90 about this time, not yet begun to plumb the abyss of wickedness from which I desperately needed salvation. Jack, have you begun to plumb that abyss? Probably not. How is it, I love this statement. This is classic Dr. Nicole. How is it that none of these things is very apparent in this biography? Because it talked about his glory and not about his sin leave it to him to bring that up. But That is a godly man at 90, walking with Jesus almost his entire life, and he recognized he was still profoundly warped by sin, and we're no different. Okay. Wow. Sorry. I've gone on forever. The picture that Jesus point paints for us is one of sinners who need to be saved from the wrath of God. Let's get to the good news. Secondly, we remember we talked about the second question was, who is Christ? How is he portrayed here? And we see that Christ is the Son of Man who was sent to suffer for our salvation. And Jesus starts all of this off by distinguishing himself from them and therefore from us. With this statement that is a little obscure, but we'll clarify it, you are from below, I am from above. Now, he's not talking about rank. He's not talking necessarily about I'm better than you it goes back to that he is, in fact, categorically different from us. He clarifies it. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Now, Jesus was in the world, but as Jesus, as Paul would say, he was not of the world. I'll clarify that in a minute. Again, that idea that he is categorically different from us from us, and he has to be categorically different from us if he 's going to deliver us from sin there 's no other way about it if he 's just like us, guess what he 's got his own sin to deal with, and just like us he can 't and so that 's why we have the, the that necessary doctrine of both fully God and fully man yeah, sharing all of our weaknesses and yet without sin. That's one important way in which he is different from us. He is in the world, but he's not of the world. Now, again, when we talk about the two natures of Christ and the one person of Christ, sometimes uh, Scripture can get a little confusing, and that's why I mentioned the Westminster Confession of Faith. From chapter 8, paragraph 7, it says this, Christ, in the work of mediation, acts according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself. And yet, okay, now here's where I wanted to focus on. By reason of the unity of the person, because he's one person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. Does that make any sense to you? Because he's one person, Scripture's not going to say, well, now the God part of Jesus did this, and now the human part of Jesus did this. Jesus did it. The one person of Jesus did it. With regard to whether or not it was performed by him as God or by him as man. And so, him, the man, was not from above, but Jesus, the person, was from above. Do you understand where I'm going with this? Does it make sense now? Okay. Okay. Hopefully that didn't make it even more obscure for people. But Jesus is not part of the corrupt world system that we participate in and that we further every day. That's not kind of where he's at. Because he is from above. Because he is not a sinner like us. Okay? Now he says, If you believe that I am, and it says there, he, now, here's, here's, a, here's the deal. I've got he in brackets for a reason, because it's not in the Greek. Okay? In a sense, what the, most of the translators are doing is they're reflecting the language of, say, Isaiah 43, where it says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. But what Jesus is saying is probably more reflective of what we read in Exodus 3. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so I've said this before, but maybe you don't remember it or you haven't heard me saying this. In Greek, one of the things about Greek is that you know how a word functions based on its ending. Everything's about the endings in Greek. Okay, so you know not just that it's a verb, but you know what kind of verb and all this stuff. So in many ways, particularly for a first-person singular, you don't need a subject. It's understood from the verb, a me. It only means I am. That's all it can mean. So when you say ego... I am, or, or sorry, ego of me. Um, I, I am, emphasis. Okay. Jesus is drawing on the divine name from Exodus chapter 3 that he's going to repeat again later on in this chapter. He's preparing the way. He's saying, not I am he with a question mark, but I am. If you believe that I am, you will not die in your sins. Jesus is able to save us precisely because he is God in the flesh. He is the creator who redeems. Now, confused about this, the Pharisees finally get to the crux of the matter and go, who are you? And if you're from my generation, in the back of your head you just went, who, 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 who? I really want to know. Okay, They really wanted to know. Who are you? Because they're probably thinking, you're a crazy man, or a confused man, or something. Just as I have been telling you from the beginning, he replies. I mean, I've been up front the whole time. Now, in John's Gospel, in the beginning, you have, remember, this is John saying this, he is the word of, who was with God, and the Word, who was God. Also in chapter 1, we see a different John, John the Baptizer, declaring that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But we see Jesus, as we've already marched through the first eight chapters of this Gospel, Jesus is the Jacob's Ladder. Jesus is the Bread of Life. Jesus is the One who gives, gives those Fountains of water that well up into everlasting life in uh, John chapter 6. Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ. He's all of these things precisely because he is the great I am. He's these things and more. But then there's this remarkable part where he says that all he has spoken, he has heard from the one who sent him, the one who is truthful. In other words, the one who was not able to lie. For instance, Titus 1 talks about this. Verse 2: In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, so forth. God never lies. Paul repeats it basically in, an op- in the opposite way in Romans, where he says, May God be true and every man a liar. God never lies. And he didn't lie to Jesus. And so all the things that Jesus says on the authority of the Father are true. Whether he speaks about us or he speaks about himself, they're true. They're reliable. We can bank on them. Now, let's apply something from this. If the eternal Son listened to and learned from the Father how much more should we? Right? If He submitted to His Father in that particular way, so should we. So that's why we should be people of the Word. Submitting ourselves and and learning from Him. And so when we speak in evangelism, we are speaking what we have heard from the Father in the Scriptures. Not just our own little half-baked ideas. But we're speaking... Eternal truth to people. Secondly, also in terms of application, as the eternal Son submitted to the Father, so we too must submit ourselves to Him. And that's not just in our thinking, but also in our willing and our doing. If we've been touched by grace, if we've been transformed by grace, then these things are increasingly happening in the life of a Christian. Okay? Remember, Dr. Nicole, you haven't arrived yet. But it's happening. It's happening. They will know that Jesus is the great I am, that he is the one he says he is, when they have lifted up the Son of Man. That was the other word, the phrase I forgot to mention. Son of Man. From Daniel chapter 9. But also remember... In uh, John 3, he talks about the Son of Man is lifted up like the bronze serpent is lifted up, and all those who look upon him and believe shall be saved. So he's tying it in again with his death. The Son of Man is lifted up, not so much in exaltation, but in crucifixion. His saving death, his bleeding and dying on behalf of sinners. Okay, his death was for the sin of others, not for his own sin. The Pharisees would die for their own. He's, so, what we do in evangelism is we're, we're pointing people to the bleeding, dying Son of Man who was sent to rescue sinners. And that's—I uh, know some of you went to see—is um, it Unbroken? Yeah. Here, it's a great movie. Okay. If you haven't heard the story of uh, Louis Zamperini. I Think I got it right, okay? Uh, Olympic runner. Uh, was he a pilot or was he just on the crew? Okay, he was just on just on the crew of a bomber in the Pacific theater. Okay, shot down in the Pacific, floating for who knows how long. Okay, a couple weeks. They were. It was over a week. Yeah. Yeah that they're floating, waiting to be rescued. So he survives this. And so this is a man of great strength of character and resolve and will. You know, Ends up in a prison camp because he's rescued by the wrong boat. <laughs> okay, And of course, at least in the movie, one of the guards recognizes that he is an Olympic athlete and takes it upon himself to try and break him and destroy him. And, and part of what the movie doesn't really get to is the fact that he was broken. And it didn't happen when he was in the prison camp. It happened when he came home. And he struggled with PTSD. And therefore, he struggled with alcohol, trying to silence the demons in his head. And he almost destroyed his marriage. And then someone brought him to a Billy Graham crusade. And he found the one, or was found by the one, who could put them all back together again. The movie, thanks to Angelina Jolie, kind of has a message almost of faith in yourself, faith in faith. But the message that that Louis wanted to portray was faith in the Savior. Faith in the one who sustained him even before he knew him, but who put him back together again and restored him in honor and glory. Lastly, we see that Jesus also works in us by the Spirit so that we do the things that are pleasing to the Father because Jesus does the things that are pleasing to the Father. And his, the Father's goal is to make us like him, Romans 8, 28, and 29, to conform us to the likeness of his beloved Son. And so just as Jesus always obeyed, the Spirit is at work in us so that we increasingly obey. One day we will always obey when we're dead, (laughs) or Jesus returns. When we see him face to face, then we will always obey. Until then, we're growing in obedience. So the Son works in us by the Spirit so that we do the things that please the Father. Okay? Now, here's how it ends. And it, it ends sort of on an interesting note in this passage. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. We'll see what that really means next week. But remember that faith comes by hearing. And how will they hear if no one goes? And how will anyone go unless they are sent? Okay. Christ has sent us into the world just as he, sent, he was sent into the world to make him known. So, while you and I might be put off and intimidated by confrontation, Jesus wasn't. He didn't see it. Oh sorry he didn't run from it but he pushed the issue when it was necessary for the sake of truth and love as we speak loving truth to others we have to be clear about who people are apart from Christ and we need to be clear about who Jesus is and so these two sets of truths complement one another you see without the one truth about us there's no need for him He's a luxury. He's an add-on. He's just a nice little bonus, but he's, you know, you can do without him. But if we believe that truth about us, he becomes necessary. He becomes essential, or we fall into despair. And when we present the gospel to people, we don't want them ending in despair. We want them to be ending in faith, hope, and love. And so we have to present both of these truths complementing each other side by side. And so speak to them the truth about sin and sins, but also speak the truth of the suffering Son of Man who bore their sin, who bore shame to set us free, to love God. Let's pray, because I've gone way too long today. Father, forgive me for taxing your people. Uh, but thank you for a rich text that, in a sense, almost needs to be taxing to us. Help us uh, not to get overwhelmed with this, but to remember that you have given us your spirit to, to work into, the, into us the things that Christ has purchased for us. So, Father, help us not to feel uh, the weight of obligation, but the, the, the freedom and the joy of calling and empowerment in the Holy Spirit. Help us to see these things with faith and not with fear and unbelief. Help us to embrace all that Jesus is saying here to us. For your glory, for our good, in Jesus' name, amen.